That you try, baby, the further you fall. Even with all the money in the whole wide world, please, please, please don't pass me. Please, please, please don't pass me. Please, please, please don't pass me by. Everything you know about me now, baby, you're gonna have to change.
Good afternoon and welcome to Summer Foundation's annual public forum. First of all, I'd like to pay respect to the traditional owners of the land, the people of the Kulin Nation, and pay our respects to their elders past and present. My name's Paul Conroy and I'm a member of the board of the Summer Foundation and it's fantastic to be here today and to welcome you here. We're going to be, today we're going to be taking a look at the NDIS and what it means for young people living in nursing homes. Judging by the loud, large crowd here today and the people online, because we are streaming this event live, there's clearly interest in this topic and it's very timely. I encourage you all to participate in, in commentary and your thoughts, both online and um, using the hashtag, wait for it, new NDIS world, both during the event and afterwards in order to keep the conversation going. Today you will hear a range of perspectives on the NDIS, looking at the current reality, your collective expectations and perhaps the gap in the middle. So let's get started. I'd like to introduce you to the host of today, Beverly O'Connor. Beverly is the host of today and the presenter of the World ABC 24 News. So thank you, Beverly, and over to you. Paul, thank you so much. Thank you. I'm really thrilled that uh, so many of you have joined us today, as Paul mentioned, so many with a vested interest in how this is all going to roll out and how this is going to play out. We know there have been a few little trials and tribulations along the way, and importantly, we want you to feel a lot more comfortable about the NDIS and what it might mean to yourselves as advocates or participants or as beneficiaries. So welcome as we explore this new world of the NDIS from a range of perspectives. Of course, the reality, the expectations, and how it may all come to fruition. Let's start with Esther Kerr-Smith, who joins us from the NDIA, which is the National Disability Insurance Agency. Esther, great to have you with us. Thank you. Let's go back to basics for everyone and just refresh people on the theory, the concept behind NDIS. Okay, it's a big idea. It's hard to summarise in a couple of minutes, but I'll do my best. Um, the NDIS is a new way of delivering disability services in Australia. Under the NDIS, Australians under 65 who experience a permanent and significant disability will receive the reasonable and necessary supports that they need to live an ordinary life. And it's worth remembering that for people who've had very limited choices and opportunities in their life, achieving an ordinary life can be a very extraordinary thing. At full scheme, in about three years, there'll be about 460,000 NDIS participants receiving reasonable and necessary supports to help them work towards and achieve their goals and aspirations, which are really focused around economic and social participation, independence and inclusion, and define as best they see fit to achieve those goals. Around those participants, their families, their carers, other people living with disability will also benefit from the NDIS in that it will deliver more open and inclusive communities and integrate people, um, even if their disability is temporary, um, more effectively and in a more transparent and fair system. And of course, all Australians will have the peace of mind that if they or their children or their loved ones acquire a disability at any point in time, we are all then insured and covered by the insurance that the NDIS provides. 
It is a really big and ambitious change program. Uh, it won't be achieved overnight. And one of the reasons for that is that it's not just about throwing more money at a situation and giving more to people who haven't had enough. It's it requires a complete change in the way disability services are delivered. It takes a system that has been widely acknowledged as too complex, not transparent, inequitable, inefficient and unfair, where people with disability did not have the decision-making deci decision power about their own lives, where the funding was allocated centrally in a sort of command and control way, and it replaces that system with one where the NDIA is not only allowed but is required to take an investment and a long-term perspective on, on what people might need over the course of their life and gives the funding to the individual and the choice and the control about how that funding spent to the individual. The implications of that are that the roles are changing for providers, for participants and for government. The funding flows are changing and many other aspects of the system are being taken apart and put back together and that transition and that change task is, is very challenging for everybody involved but also very exciting. And what it relies on is all of us staying true to the mutuality that saw the NDIS founded in the first place and, um, and contributing and giving feedback and responding over the next few years. That was beautifully summarised. Thank you very much, Esther. <laughs> yes, give her a round of applause. Well, let's break this down a little and uh, talk about families. Carol Littley, you and your family live in Barwon. Two and a half years ago, your daughter Kirby was diagnosed with a brain tumour. And after surgery, she had a number of strokes that resulted in an acquired brain injury. Give us a sense of what the significant changes were for Kirby in the months following her brain injury. Well, before her tumour was diagnosed, she was obviously unwell. And then, but she was working. She had her own home. She socialised. She was driving a car. She drove to Melbourne, she loved getting secondhand things for a house and doing up her place. Um, she'd come out for dinner with us. After that happened, she was, for the first three weeks, she was able to move her left side, but she was unable to speak. She had a tracheostomy. She was being fed through a peg. She couldn't communicate at all except to blink once for yes, twice for no. And we actually drove home one night planning how we would make her life fulfilling as a quadriplegic. And then she had the second lot of strokes and then she was, well, that was when we, planned, we said that she had the second lot of strokes and she couldn't do anything. And she is now totally reliant on people doing things for her. So life changes dramatically. Your friends drop off. Um, you're not invited out to all the social functions because you can't eat. Um, she can't work, so she's on a disability pension. She had a good income. She was a teacher at a special school. Um, just totally, totally changes her life. She's, she's isolated. She's, um, and this is before now with the NDIS. She, she was just basically alone and it, it changed all our lives dramatically. Yeah, so such a significant shift for you. You were conscious then that the NDIS trial was underway in Barwon. 
What did you start learning about it? What were your hopes and expectations of what a difference this could make to Kirby? Well, I didn't really, at the start, I didn't know what the NDIS was. I, I knew it was there, but I didn't know what it would do. And the first time someone told me about it, I was in denial that Kirby wasn't going to get better. Because as a mother, you just think that something's going to happen and she's going to be fine again. And I didn't really want to do anything. And then we met, we met the LAC and a planner while Kirby was still in Melbourne, we were trying to get her back to Geelong for rehab and they were, they were the first time we'd had someone in a public service role, of all the people we'd dealt with, medical, centrally, all these places, they actually sat and listened and were empathetic and I, I honestly thought, oh my God, these people are going to help us, they're going to do something for us. It was. It, it really gave so us hope. you didn't hope. feel so isolated? No, I felt like someone was on our side. Mm -hmm. that, was the, that was the feeling we got when we walked out. It was friendly when we went in. Everyone was friendly. And we actually weren't expecting it because you, you have an idea of what institu you know, government institutions are like. And we walked in and people were so nice to us. You know, come and sit down. How are you? We'll get someone. And then we sat down and talked about what was happening and that we wanted to get Kirby back to Geelong. And... and yeah, they were helpful and then we had more meetings and things just got better and better as far as a promise for the future and that Kirby would get the things she needed and that eventually, hopefully, she would get home, which she now has. Well, we're very happy to say that Kirby is with us in the audience here today together with her dad, Kevin, so it's lovely to have you here. Now, we know initially with these kinds of injuries, the place that many people go is into a nursing home. So, Kirby, what were your hopes from the NDIS, particularly around the reality of perhaps moving out of the nursing home? Hi, um, my name's Kevin. I'm uh, Kirby's father, and I'm responding on her behalf because she has a little problems uh, speaking with the uh, speech valve. That's no problem at all. Thank you. So, this is a pre-written uh, answer to that question that Kirby's prepared. I wasn't very happy at the nursing home, so I desperately wanted to get home. My hope was that the NDIS could provide me with the resources I needed to get home, such as bathroom modifications, a specialised bed, other equipment and a team of support workers. Thank you, Kirby. And uh, through Ke Dad there. Carol, so let's look at this practical process. How did it unfold versus your expectations? Well, we had pretty positive expectations because we were meeting, while Kirby was in the nursing home, we were having regular meetings with the NDIS and they would come out and we'd all sit around a table with Allied Health and we were talking about, of course, Allied Health knew exactly what Kirby would need to come home. We had been taking Kirby home just during the day on weekends so we knew we couldn't get her into the bathroom, to the toilet, we had a commode and there were different things we knew that were going to be difficult when she came home for 24 hours a day. So... Um, we talked about um, the bed she'd need, the chairs. There were little things like ramps, the um, bathroom modifications, lots of little things that you don't think about too. And, you know, going in the front door and you can't get over that little lip and they're the things you don't think of and someone say, well, you need to get a little rubber um, little wedge little that, go yeah, that goes there and takes the chair over. So. It was, it was a very, it was very positive and um, my expectations were probably um, what I was, we were hearing what we expected to hear from someone 
in the NDIS that was representing a scheme that was going to give Kirby choice and, and have a reasonable life, you know. So they were living up to our expectations at that stage. So you were feeling well prepared yes, for what was going yes, to happen? Yes. Let's go to Rick Morton, who's the social affairs writer at The Australian. And Rick, welcome. You've taken a very active interest and a vocal interest in the NDIS. From your point of view, as you've watched it unfold, how do you understand and believe the theory and concept of the NDIS should work? Yeah, well, I, I started writing about the NDIS three years ago um, when almost nobody else was in Australia because I thought it deserved attention. Um, and it's a really, really big and important scheme. Um, not that it matters particularly much, but our paper editorialised in favour of it. I've always supported it. Uh, but I, my job is to be a professional cynic sometimes and to look at the reality versus the concept. And I've often described it as the platonic form versus when you try to pull that idea from the ether and put it into practice. And so I've seen my role as, as very much to keep a watching brief on the NDIS to make sure that it does live up to that promise um, that was made all those years ago because it is one of the most important promises that could be made in this country. I think yeah, we, when you think about government, the role it should play is in helping the most vulnerable people in the country. Um, and that goes beyond just legislating the scheme. It goes to making sure the rollout works, to making sure that there aren't caps put in place, to making sure that choice and control is there like it was promised. Um, and I think we are seeing um, the NDIS meet its KPIs on a, on a whole bunch of those levels. But um, sometimes I feel like I'm the bad guy because I have to point out the things that don't work. Um, but I think that's an important role of, um, in public service. And do you think it was too ambitious when it started? Um, it probably wasn't ambitious enough, actually, because we've got issues in terms of the number of numbers that might have needed to be involved, um, particularly among Indigenous Australians who live in remote communities. So I think, I think the argument was had and it was won on a $22 billion a year scheme. Um, and, and I think there was a lot of bipartisan support for that and the human interest stories really helped that. Um, but now the ambition uh, really has to come to the fore in terms of making sure that works. Um, and comes off, but I think, I think it had to happen. The Productivity Commission said it had to happen because of the economic benefits and the old system being broken and flawed. Um, and it, it warned that you couldn't just have another version of a federated disability system. You actually have to have an NDIS as they proposed it, and that has to be implemented. So ambition is required now. Yes, and, and we'll talk a little bit more about the politics of that as it plays out as well. Let's go to Luke, Luke Bosher, who's head of policy and strategy at the Summer Foundation. And uh, Luke has been very closely involved, of course, in the design of the NDIS in, the formal, in your former role as director. So great to have you with us, Luke. In your view, how, having listened to a few views here, what is your idea of what the purpose of the NDIS should be? Great, thank you. Uh, so I think Esther really hit the nail on the head when she said that it's not about just having more money for people with disability to get what they need. But what the Productivity Commission said was that we have a system that's really inefficient because it's so complicated. And so there were really two ways that the Productivity Commission said we should address that problem. One was to spend more because we do need more money to support people. But it was about how do we do that in the wisest possible way? How do we make the most of the investment in people with disability to help them live the lives that they want to lead? So really two things that they came up with. One was to use an insurance-based approach to spending that money. So that was to uh, have a lifetime commitment to people that it didn't matter how old you grew within the scheme, the money would be always there to support you. And people needed that confidence to be able to move out of home, to live independently. So that lifetime commitment 
is important. And so is the idea that we should be spending money now in order to invest early to support people rather than wait till things get into a crisis because that would be more expensive. So that was part of it. And the other part of the NDIS to me is around the choice and control that um, government bureaucrats in Canberra aren't very good at knowing which is the right service for people with disability to be accessing, that people with disability are experts in their own lives. And so the NDIS is about recognising that people with disability are experts in their own lives and um, are the best place people to know which is the right service for them to be supported by, not a kind of a contract manager in Canberra. Um, one thing I did want to touch on though is about what the NDIS was not for because it's not something that we've kind of talked about so far. And I think one of the most challenging things from, from the Summer Foundation, from young people in nursing homes, is that the NDIS wasn't for every support that a person with disability needs in their life. That um, the NDIS was always about the health system and the justice system and the education system and the social security system continuing to support people with disability. And I think in focusing on the NDIS, we also have to put pressure on other systems to do their job for people with disability. And remember that the NDIS isn't about supporting people with disability in everything that they need, and that the health system still has a really important job. And we probably have been so focused on delivering the NDIS that we haven't thought enough about how the health system also needs to change to support people with disability. That's a really great point. And, and Esther, I might come back to you. Do you think it, it was fully understood by all the agencies of how as Luke points, uh, sorry, yeah, Luke points out that that the NDIS and the health system, as it is now, should work together. I think the concept that there were risks around gaps or duplication was really well understood, but precisely how that would play out in different circumstances was impossible to um, perfectly predict. Our um, our chair of our independent advisory council, Rhonda Galbuddy, holds everybody to account on this, and she says. The supports in the NDIS, I'm going to get this quote wrong, but something along the lines of the supports in the NDIS are about the bridge for people with disability to uh, fully access mainstream supports. They are not replacing mainstream supports and they are not the end in and of themselves. So that the NDIS absolutely uh, should wrap around a person and help them access everything else that the community should be offering people with disabilities. Um, has that happened perfectly in trial? No. Will there continue to be friction there? Yes, but I think my colleagues in other departments are fairly acutely aware of the responsibilities that still lie with them and very committed to trying to work it out. Yeah, that's a great word, access. Let's go to Dr Peter Gibalisco, who's a disability activist and a researcher. Peter, you also have extensive personal experience with the current state disability service system. Tell us about your experiences and also some of the frustrations that you experience with the current system. Peter. I look back on the last five years and come to a sad conclusion. For some considerable time, I have been losing control of my movements. But from July 2011 there has occurred a progressive loss of control that is potentially more fundamental than the biological loss of muscular power. It has not been physiological so much as social and personal. What am I referring to? July 2011, 
five years ago was when I moved into a group home for people with high support needs. The move came about after being encouraged by various people to enter this group home. This happened because the Department of Human Services, as it was then known, could not allocate an extra three hours per day that were necessary for me to work safely and productively during the day in my own residence. At no stage was the kind of loss of control that I have subsequently experienced in a personal and social sense brought to my attention by those who were encouraging me to make this decision, not least those in charge of the facility in which I have subsequently found myself. The movers and the shakers in disability care, those who are stakeholders in the disability care industry, seek to find a solution that is cheap and safe rather than one in which a flexible supporting regime can provide the client with support that maintains the good things that have previously been a part of life already constrained. And what differences do you think NDIS is going to make to your life? The scheme is based on control and choices all of the funding provided to people will be individually driven. This will mean an important shift in the power away from the government and service providers and into the hands of people with disabilities and their families. Direct employment, self-managed, gives the flexibility in the choice of support workers, negotiation of salary hours and work that needs to be undertaken. As hours of duty and pay rates become more flexible, this is more attractive to support workers as well. As a direct employer, you'll need to be familiar with a range of things, such as work cover and taxation laws. This can be complicated and may mean that you need to ensure you comply with legal, financial, and human resource obligations as well as maintaining records about your employees. Therefore, a large amount of money is put into the training of disability professionals. But there is little credit given to the ability of people with disabilities who often act in management roles for the day-to-day -day management of their home-based support workers or the management of disability professionals. Direct employment, self-managed, practices the belief that the people being supported are, more often than not, the best teachers regarding the support they need and how it can be delivered. Direct employment, self-managed, is to ensure that financial control of the supports being used is in the hands of person with disabilities or the person's family or a trustee. Therefore social participation in this instance provides individual control. Thank you so much, Peter. Let's go to another Peter, Peter Fencham-Cobb, who's been working in this uh, field for 25 years. She's with the Melbourne City Mission. Peter, give us a sense of what you tell people who are going to transition from the old system to this new world. 
Um, I guess I guess our messaging is is consistent with what everybody's been talking about, particularly around um, choice and control. It sounds very easy, um, but for many of our customers who have been accessing a system where support's been directed and and often imposed, it's very difficult to suddenly understand, firstly, what you're already receiving, and secondly, what might make a significant difference to your future. Um, so, so our messaging is really around those two things, I suppose. Firstly, understanding um, how the system is working for you now, um, and secondly, um, encouraging people, I suppose, with that blue sky thinking to, to not be constrained anymore by what government and, in fact, providers are telling them they should have. Let's go to Lynn Foreman, who has, lives in Barwon. Lynn's been an NDIS participant from the early days of the Barwon trial and campaigned very strongly for the NDIS. Lynn, give us a sense of the gaps that you have found between the NDS expectations and the reality that you've experienced. Well, for me, because I was actually on the DHS waiting list, so I had very limited funds. So when the NDIS came in, it was just a breath of fresh air. Um, I guess I did a lot of um, research, of course. I actually had a list of what I needed and what I wanted and everything like that, and it was, it was given to me. So I haven't found any gaps personally. I know there is gaps out there, as um, somebody said, between health and disability, you know, what is the difference? Um, but for me, I'm still a happy vegemite. So. <laughs> That's wonderful to hear. So that it was just something that you were waiting for to a degree. Well, I only had about 14 hours. So it was like, do I have a shower or do I get my washing pegged out? So when the NDIS come in, I got, I think it was 38 hours per week because I wanted, I explained that I wanted to go swimming twice a week. I wanted to go surfing, which... <laughs> Well, you've got to make sure. You should, you, yes. Yeah, exactly. So I made sure I had, I ticked off all the boxes, what I was getting prior, and also added more because I needed a bath, which needs hoisting, so it's, you know, a bit more complicated than just throwing in a bath. Um, I didn't want to be like a tea bag, I always say, because um, <laughs> I only had an hour prior to this, so I never, even though I had the hoist, I couldn't have a bath yeah. because otherwise an hour, what do you do? Lift in and out. That's it. <laughs> Literally like a tea bag. I love so, that analogy. You know, for my experience, it's just yeah, it's been great. That's wonderful to hear. Well, we're going to introduce you digitally to Gordon and Colin Irvine, brothers living in the Hunter region of New South Wales. Gordon has a disability and is surrounded by a very solid family network. Neither Gordon nor his family were even aware of the NDIS or aware of the fact that Gordon was eligible for the scheme. Let's take a listen. My name's Colin, I'm Gordon's elder brother. He's, Gordon's two years younger than me. Last year I was living in a nursing home. There I constantly felt like I was being supervised by my parents again. I was faced with old people's choices. Old people's TV, books and food. There's nothing wrong with that, but the time for that is when you're old. I first became aware of the NDIS uh, when one of the managers from the nursing home rang and said, there's a lady here we've been speaking with who uh, would like to talk to you about possibly um, having Gordon access some support through 
the scheme and it was at that point that we became aware that there was this the NDIS was coming into existence in Newcastle as a trial. We didn't know what to make of it um, so we, we read up hopeful it would mean that it would be some other accommodation option other than a nursing home and some additional support for his physical rehabilitation um, and the more we got into it the more hopeful we became that those things would be available. Initially, I was expecting the NDIS to be too good to be true. So far, I've been pleasantly surprised. I'd like to see some more work in Gordon's plan on increasing his mobility. I think mobility will increase his independence. So if he's able to transfer to and from the chair to the toilet or to and from the chair to, to bed, I think that would be fantastic. I guess with anything that's new, there are obviously going to be teething problems. So the, the promises that were made initially um, they, on timeframes weren't really going to be realistic. We said this is going to take them a lot longer to do than, than what they've said, but we're prepared to wait because it will be worth it in the end. Yes, the Irvine brothers. Now let's go to Tom Warsnop, who is from the Summer Foundation. Now, Tom, you've been heading up a pilot program that really goes into nursing homes, trying to connect young people to the NDIS, like Gordon. Why was it necessary to make them aware and to, to do that kind of connection? Well, I guess initially we were very conscious of the fact that a lot of people in nursing homes are living very isolated lives. They, and, um, and our work when we went in there was based on some research in the Bowen region which indicated that unless somebody had a very strong advocate with them, it was unlikely that they would find out about the NDIS or would connect with it. And like there are great um, examples here where families were involved and that was really important in terms of connection. But we were very conscious of the fact that there was a lot of people who the scheme would be really valuable for, but they needed to know how to find it. So we went into the various trial um, sites to find, to get some evidence about what was going on. And I think a lot of people have understandings about what might be the case, but we really wanted to show what was the case. Um, and I guess when we, when we went in, we found that 75% of the people that we did actually make contact with had no previous experience of disability. And so these ideas of choice and control and all of the really fantastic fundamentals of the scheme were relatively unknown in terms of how you make that work. So we jumped in, and in fact, I think that's what a lot of people did with the NDIS. We, as an agency, decided the best thing here, this is, the, this is a once-in-a-generation opportunity to really make a difference to people in nursing homes. So we needed to jump in to make sure that we gave people in nursing homes the same opportunities too. Rick, you've been covering this for a while now. What do you think are those disconnects? Between the plan and reality? Yes. Uh, look, I think the disconnect... I mean, Tom's project is a perfect example. I love Tom's project. Um, I could talk about it all day long. But, I mean, the NDIS came, um, but the promise uh, wasn't entirely fulfilled until somebody went out there searching mm. for the people to get access to it, equal access to it anyhow. Um, I guess a lot of the stuff that I write about at the moment is um, particularly around choice and control. I know that the agency is trying to get up the numbers of people who self-manage um, their own plans. I mean, that's, that's really key. Um, and there's, there are a couple of issues floating around in terms of how much money is paid up front to people who do self-manage their plans and the float, um, which gives them a bit of extra money to pay for their services. And at the moment, that's been, as I understand it, taken away. And so people are left out of pocket. Um, and that's 
not part of the promise, or at least it wasn't originally. And I'm sure that's an operational thing. But so these are the little things that I'm always looking out for as a journalist because I don't. I feel like a bit of a fraud. Um, I don't have any lived experience of disability. Um, I am a white man, um, middle class these days. Um, but I made it my job um, early on to talk to people in the disability community and to talk to as many as I can. Um, and they, they're the ones that tell me about these issues and I want to highlight them. Um, I think the other disconnect at the moment is in terms of um, uh, kind of like the market. Um, the market is a really big thing. The, the way service providers enter um, to start doing services for people with disabilities. I mean, choice control is a wonderful concept, but if you actually don't have um, a market out there to you know, hire the services you need, then it's not going to come to fruition. And that's going to take a long time to develop, and that is developing now. Um, but, and we'll get there, but it's going to take a bit of time. Esther, what are your thoughts on expectations and reality? I think it depends whether your expectations are around the vision, which we all know will take several years. And if your expectations are that the vision is your experience today, then there'll be a big gap. Um, but if your expectations are about a step-by-step -step journey um, and you're prepared to speak frankly with the agency about where they're not met, um, that's the only way we're going to identify and close the gaps. I think the Summer Foundation project to reach out to people who were not confident or identi self-identifying that the NDIS for, was for them is a fantastic uh, initiative. And it's something that the agency can learn from and has learned from. So in transition now, we're much more actively working with states, but also with Department of Health and Ageing to identify who they are providing services for, who might be eligible, who might not be confident to put in an access request yet. So perfect example of a change from an old system to a new system that creates a, a potential gap, which where the theory is not the reality, mm. and um, we have to work with partners and providers and others in the community to identify it, respond to it and feel it. I agree with Rick that the market is, you know, the sort of silent second part of this. If the, the, all the plans in the world don't, um, don't really change anything unless the services are there and responsive to your needs for you to purchase. And providers are, for the most part, you know, on board, they ask for this scheme, they advocate as strongly for it, and they're really reforming to try and um, re-engineer their operations to be person-centric and to respond to that. But we're asking them to deliver a lot more very quickly, funded differently, um, and it will take time. It really will. And there might be gaps in the meantime. All right, let's go back to Tom then. Tom, what do you feel the learnings and the recommendations what did you learn and what would you recommend in terms of filling those gaps? Well, I guess in a lot of ways, um, we learned things, um, we didn't learn new things. There was a lot of things that we already expected. So people who are very isolated, they require a lot of support to be able to understand the scheme. Um, they require a lot of support and I guess the Littley family is an example of that. When you've got somebody who can assist the individual who themselves are struggling with traumas themselves or are living in an isolated place, um, to be able to do, um, to be able to succeed in the scheme, you do need to have some assistance and so we found that out. Um, we also found out, I think, that um, 
you know, it takes a lot of time and resources for people who are in, who have complex disabilities to be able to go through a process of planning, even to understand what a planning process is or to construct a goal when really you're dealing with day-to-day -day experience. Um, that takes a lot of work. So I guess we learnt things that we had known but we'd learnt how to make it work within a scheme. And I guess that's part of the challenge as we, everybody is saying at the moment. The philosophy of the scheme is really fundamentally sound from our point of view. Um, but the, but um, rolling that out and making it operational is a significant challenge for us all. And I think we all have to continue to be in the game to make sure that outcomes occur well. And I, I referenced that point you made, Esther, a little bit about the, the health system, for example. I mean, the health system needs to increase its capacity to deliver too because there have been in the past ways in which some of that's been covered up by the disability system and that's no longer possible. So we need to do things in a new way and we need to continue to learn. We've, we've got to really make sure we don't just think we've got it right now. Social media, of course, is a big factor. Carol, you're an avid follower of the Facebook page and you post there quite regularly. There's a high concentration of comments that come through. Why do you think it's important to use Facebook to post and to, to keep that information flow? For me, it was a new world and I wanted to be involved with people that were in that world at the start. But now I often go on and answer, someone will come on with a, with a, a comment about the NDIS that doesn't have their lived experience. So I'll go on and say, look, you know what, that's not actually what's happening. And I think I try to allay that fear because from my experience of dealing as a person new to disability, living in this world with our daughter, um, I can't even imagine how some people have managed up until now. Their system has, in the past, has let them down. They're, they're desperate, they want this to work, they see something bad and they get scared because they don't trust anymore. They've had their trust shattered so many times. So what I'm trying to say to people is give this a go, don't listen to all the negativity and I do get on there sometimes and criticise. I'm not going to not criticise because I think we have to do that to make things better. But what I try to say is when someone said the other day, oh my, my disability pension, uh, my friend's disability pension was cut when they went onto the NDIS, they're not related at all. But what happens is that becomes a fear and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger until people start to really panic about it. So I'll often get on and just say, you know, don't panic. Sometimes I get on and talk about our experiences. One day I wrote about Kirby living with the disability and how she's treated out in the public and how, how people use the toilets and do this and do that and that, that we need the NDIS or someone through the NDIS to step up and show the wider public that we need to respect people with disabilities yeah, Social media is so great for sharing, but it can be a lot of misinformation mm. as well, which is really critical. Which brings us back to Rick, of course. Rick, you're in the mainstream media, but I know you'd probably get a lot of social media. Yes, <laughs> we'll shoot you, shoot you. I'm with you, so I understand your role. Um, of course, we know this week that the board has been completely overhauled. We're not yet quite sure who will be the new board in its complete, in its entirety. And you also write a lot about the politics. We know that all the states signed up for this, but that commitment is wavering maybe a little bit, or it, it, it doesn't, it may not be exactly the same as when states signed up for it. What do you see as your role? Uh, God, it sounds cliched, but I, I really see it as 
kind of like the people can make decisions about what the NDIS is to them and how it's going to affect them based on accurate information that's in the public domain. I've, I've written stories where I've had people kind of get angry at me for writing it even though I'm quoting something that's happening or reporting something that is factually happening. The board's a perfect example. Mm. I mean, that is a political thing that happened this week. I got a leaked document um, that showed Christian Porter's new final list of appointees. Um, Bruce Bonahatty, the chair, will be removed um, come January 1. Um, that is a reality. Um, and the, the politics of this is particularly important because the NDIS was designed, uh, conceived as a collaboration between the Commonwealth and every single state and territory. And at the moment, you've got WA, who's probably about to announce their hybrid version of the NDIS. You've got the ACT that's hit a cap. Not, well, yeah, a cap. Um, and it has to be renegotiated. And, so, and the states want something different out of the NDIS. Um, some of them, I'm not going to name names, have seen the NDIS as a vehicle into which to put all of their responsibilities that they used to have under disability services. Um, and that's not OK, because they still have to fund the people that don't make it into the NDIS. That, and, and they want to get rid of all of that. So the Commonwealth is concerned about how much influence the states want. Now, the Commonwealth has its own vested interest, and it's trying, according to some worldviews, it's trying to um, bring back control from the states. Um, and that's the kind of the, the context in which this board decision has been made. Mm. Um, Christian Porter um, is trying to kind of steady the ship um, because he doesn't trust the states, I don't think. I'm probably verbally in him. But I don't think he trusts the states um, to handle the NDIS at full flight. And you talked about earlier being, you know, a sort of neutral, unaffected person. I know that you eat smashed avocado. I can just tell <laughs> it on your face. <laughs> I do. I you do. Breakfast. We all love it. Damn. We have to give it up. But... <laughs> I'm so poor. <laughs> in the board's composition, how critical is it to have lived experience of this? Oh, you you because, have to. I yes. mean, I mean, I, as I said before, I don't have lived experience. I mean, I, and I, I make sure I talk to people who do, but you can't run an organisation about people with disabilities without people with disabilities. I mean, it's that old catch cry, nothing about us without us. Um, that's their phrase. Um, and you've got, I mean, obviously Rhonda um, Galbelli will stay on the board. Um, and and I, I understand there's a couple of the new appointees have some experience with disability. I don't know if they've got it themselves or they've got children with disability, and that obviously counts for something. Um, but there's precious little other diversity in that sense. A lot of finance knowledge, a lot of corporate knowledge, very important. And that's, make, that's making people nervous that it's going to become about the money and yes. capping. And mm. I understand that um, it, completely. Um, and particularly when you've got eight new appointees and you know, one's an Optus um, chairman, one's former Westpac, one's Vita Credit. Um, I mean, these are, this is a very corporate-heavy board. And I, I get the reason for that. There has to be financial rigour when it comes to this scheme, otherwise it goes away for everyone. But surely the mix could be a bit better. Mm. Tom, I might come back to you briefly for a comment about that kind of overhaul at this time. Well, I do think that um, the lived experience is, is what informs us all in our work. And certainly the work that Summer Foundation does is informed by that. And I think people relate to the lived experience when they see it in a way that they can't through somebody else. So. Uh, you know, I agree with Rick, you know, like understand that the rigour has to be there financially, but the NDIS is not an isolated financial scheme. It actually is a scheme that has to engage people in the process of making the fundamental philosophy of it work. Um, and there needs to be a driver that comes out of the scheme that actually allows that to occur. So 
you know, Bruce Bonahady was a fantastic visionary in terms of um, creating the, the atmosphere for this scheme to, to begin. And I think, it, you know, he's been a good friend to the Summer Foundation, to a lot of people with disabilities. Um, so being able to continue to have that influence in the scheme is absolutely fundamental, I feel. Terrific. Thanks, Tom. Peter, let's come back now. I'll leave the politics alone for a moment and the practicalities. How does a service like the Melbourne City Mission prepare people for this shift? Uh, well, first of all, we have to prepare ourselves, and I think that um, in, in some ways, hopefully, the changes for providers are probably more significant um, and probably uh, anxiety-provoking than they should be for people with disability and their families. I think we sometimes forget and we're very vocal about the problems that we might encounter as providers um, and we need to ensure that that doesn't influence the perspective of people with disability about the NDIS. We do think it's a very positive thing. It's not an easy thing for providers to, to adapt to, I suppose, moving from, I guess, what we would call a, a welfare model to being a mission-based commercial entity, not losing sight of why we do what we do but being very mindful of the fact that this is much more commercial. It is an insurance model. It is about a lifetime approach, not an annual budget. Um, so I think that part of the work that we need to do is, is being prepared ourselves so that the transition for people with disability is, is as seamless as possible. Um, but I do think that there's a large responsibility on providers to ensure that um, our customers, people with disability and families that we work with now, are as prepared as possible. Um, it's, it's a huge amount of work for the NDIA to prepare 10,000 people, for example, in the northeast um, to be planning well. Um, and I think that planning is, is really our biggest challenge but also our biggest opportunity. Um, it's it's a, a massive risk that people with disability won't have in their plans what they need mm. to live an ordinary life, as, as Esther's described. Um, and it is very difficult for someone to walk into a, a planning process, perhaps if they're a young person in a nursing home who's with a recently acquired disability, not understanding the system, not understanding what's available to them. We can talk about market as much as we like, but unless you know what's in the market, you don't know what to purchase. Um, so planning, I think, is, is, is absolutely fundamental. We offer a lot of pre-planning kind of opportunities um, for people that, that we talk to, not just our customers, but anyone can request those from Melbourne City Mission. We do a lot of work internally to look at not just our disability services division, but all of our divisions. Um, we have uh, do a lot of work in the youth um, justice and homelessness sectors. There are many people with disability who, who are caught up in systems um, and don't access any disability support. So as providers, we we kind of have a responsibility, I think, to make sure that everyone who can benefit does. So important. Let's go to Fiona May. And Fiona, you're the CEO of the ACT Disability Aged and Carer Advocacy Service. What role does your organisation play in transitioning people to this new world? 
So advocates have a really important role in helping people to navigate the whole system of the NDIS. In the ACT, we were lucky to get some money to help people to do some of that readiness activity, just learning about the NDIS and what it might mean for them. We've also helped people through the pre-planning stages, attended planning meetings with people, helped people to understand their plan once they got it, and then have helped them to navigate the process of finding services that they're happy with or changing to different service providers if they're not happy with a service. The really key thing about advocacy is the independence of advocacy. So because we're not a service provider, we don't have a vested interest. Because we're not a family member, we don't have a long history or some concerns of our own that we're worried about making sure are heard in the process as well. So advocates are very much about making sure it's the voice of the person with disability that's heard. Unfortunately, one of the big problems is there's just not enough access to independent advocacy. I heard just this week, for example, that in New South Wales, the tribunal is actually having to appoint guardians for people who have nobody else in their lives besides service providers in order for that guardian to help the person enter the NDIS. That's really disappointing. It's a huge paradox when the NDIS is about choice and control to take away a person's choice and control by appointing a guardian. So we have a real issue with the precariousness of funding for advocacy across Australia. Many of the state governments have signalled that they're going to withdraw funding from advocacy. We believe the Commonwealth is potentially going to pick that up, but we don't know when and we don't know how. And there hasn't been a conversation about increased funding for advocacy. The other key role of advocacy organisations is supporting people through the reviews and appeals processes because those are really important elements that are helping to get the scheme right. So we worked with people, for instance, who on first pass were told they were not eligible for the NDIS when we went back with them to their doctors and talked through the doctor about how to fill that form out to make uh, a clearer statement of the impact of the person's disability, the person's been able to enter the scheme. Likewise, things have been left out of plans. Not every planner is making a perfect plan the first time round. And those review and appeal processes are really important to make sure people are getting the things that they need. Such an important cog. Now, I, I, we were talking about the politics and the various, you know, I guess, approaches from the states and territories. There are reports that the ACT is actually going to cap the number of people. What would your view be if that was going to happen and what do you know about whether this is true? So it appears that it actually has happened. The, the situation is that the bilateral agreement with the ACT listed a particular number of people that would enter the scheme and then said that the Commonwealth was responsible for any additional people who entered in the ACT. We've now reached that number and the, AC, the Commonwealth has said, well, we're not going to let any more participants in the ACT enter until we have a new bilateral agreement. The language has changed just a little bit in the last day or so. They're now saying to people who have been found eligible but haven't got a planning appointment that they'll be in touch in four weeks to talk about when they might get a planning appointment. But that doesn't address the issue of the many people in the ACT, including many of our clients, whose access requests have been lodged or who are in the process of lodging an access request when those people might actually see plans. So, there is a genuine concern in the ACT about the fact that people had a promise made to them that everybody would transition in during this transition period and there are some people who are now being left behind. Yeah. And very... Yes, please. <clears throat> so you're right. The, there, there are recent updates on this and I, I think it's timely to say that um, 
at the agency, our understanding is that the Commonwealth have had discussions with the ACT. The original targets were only ever estimates and it isn't capped in the ACT and the agency can confirm that it is doing planning if you've already had an access request approved in the ACT then you can come back and have your planning conversation now. And if you haven't put your access request in, you can put it in. Okay. So, but it is, it is in the last 24, 48 hours subsequent to the ACT election results. Um, being so was that why that those conversations have been able to be had. Okay, so you weren't able to, to have those conversations while the election was in process? It would have been inappropriate, yes. Yeah, which often happens. Let's go back to Gordon and uh, look at the role that advocacy has played in his NDIS journey. When we put the first plan together, uh, I was a little sceptical as to whether or not they'd accept any of it. Um, but have, speaking with the staff from the NDIS um, and working through the process, uh, it became clear that you know, this was this was achievable, and it was it was something that they were interested in in um, going forward with. The NDIS has given my life a sense of direction again, and has given me the opportunity to move out of the nursing home and into a group home. I now have choice, choice of what TV shows I watch, what food I eat and how I spend my money. Everyone wants it, don't they? It's good to be in a place where I like to be instead of where I have to be. It's nice to go out at my discretion, not everyone else's. Uh, my advice to families looking at the NDIS as a potential source of support for a family member would be to not be scared of it because it's a government agency doing government things, um, but go in with your eyes open and if you can get some support as well to help you through the process. Lynn, let's come back to you. You've had a very positive experience. What do you think the significant lessons are out of the Barwon trial site? That's a good one. Um, I guess it's like the um, whoever said before, I'd, even myself, even on Arctic, I really had to have an advocate as well. Um, I think everyone needs an advocate because, let's face it, you don't know what you've got until you... As you don't know what they can offer, you don't know what you've got. Mm. So um, I think having an advocate with me when I first had my plan, it was beneficial. And also, because I was about the second one in the door, I think I had about four revisions because I forgot things. I mean, the thing is, we live our life. We don't think about um, every little nitty-gritty thing we actually do. We just do it. And I guess having an advocate with you, you know, like she said, oh, well, don't forget about taxis and, you know, little th even incontinence. You don't, you know, like it's those sort of things that you just use. You know, if I was to ask you what you do 24 hours a day, you couldn't tell me. I'd have no idea. So, <laughs> You're dead right. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, we were the same. And, I mean, because we were, uh, were told what we could get through our providers, we sort of just accepted it. Um, now I've got three providers, so I'm, I'm, you know, very good. I can switch and change whenever I like. 
So I do have choice and control. Knowledge is power. Let's go back to Luke. Luke, again, the trial sites. What do you think the most significant policy implications are and opportunities going forward? Yeah, I think that one of the big things is about the lessons that we learned from the trial sites, and that's why the government called them a trial site, was because we wanted to learn things. I think that's been something that um, is, has been done really well in the NDIS, to say we're going to start with a small number of places, test this idea, learn from it, and build and move forward. I think the challenge in that is that it means the scheme constantly evolves and it constantly changes. And when we were talking about social media before, you know, people say things on social media that might have been true a week ago and aren't true this week, or they were true a month ago and aren't true this week. And so I think one of the really big challenges for providers and for people with disability is um, understanding where the scheme's at today. Um, and for a lot of people, making a prediction about where the scheme is going to be at in a month's time or a year's time when they come into the NDIS. So I think it's a great approach to learn from, um, from the experience of doing the NDIS. Um, and it just means that there's a frustration that comes with that that's kind of a necessary frustration that the scheme will constantly be changing. In terms of opportunities, one of the areas that we haven't seen as much progress on in the NDIS so far is around housing. And there's a really exciting period ahead now that um, there's a lot more clarity from the agency about how housing will be funded in the NDIS. And most young people in nursing homes would be getting funding from the NDIS to pay for the bricks and mortar of a home to move out of an aged care facility and into a home of their own. There's a lot of really exciting opportunities around home ownership for people with disability in the NDIS, um, and a lot of opportunity to address housing, which has been such a big gap for young people in nursing homes. One of the challenges with that is that there's not housing funding for everybody in the NDIS. Um, it's for a small number of people. Um, and one of the challenges for the agency will be about trying to work out the balance of who should be seeking support from the social housing system and public housing versus where the agency should be supporting them. But we, we think that overall this is such an exciting potential over the next kind of months and years around developing housing, which has been such a big barrier for young people in nursing homes. Thanks, uh, Luke. And, and, and Esther, I guess just your point about the capping is a perfect example of how things are moving. Yeah. In terms of reforms, I guess it's so critical not to have a set view of how this plays out. What are the critical things that have changed for you, do you think, over time? So I'm glad you asked change for me because then it can be my opinion and not necessarily <laughs> correct. Um, but uh, so the trials, as Luke said, the trials um, were about testing whether the theory worked in practice and how it worked best. And it's important to reflect on the fact that the last quarterly report out of the NDIS um, showed that they were resoundingly successful. Over three years, they have delivered the scheme on time, on budget, 95% of participants are saying their experience is good or very good. And without having been able to say that over the last three years, then question how we would have held up the level of public support and political support for this scheme into the future. So it's important that we are able to say that. As well in the trial, 50% of people received supports for the first time, which, I mean, if it's you think about that way. for a second, um, that's amazing. But, of course, how they interact with the new system, um, we were learning every day, and it's, um, it's frightening and scary for people to do something new ever of this magnitude, let alone when they're not accustomed to um, 
being in control and making choice. So a couple of the highlights I thought that we learnt from trial that I'm reflecting on that we are, we are embedding and learning on now in transition relate to you can't pull apart a direct resource allocation between government and provider and give it to participants and just expect them to connect with providers automatically. So the dearth of information that's, that was out there about or, and is still out there about what the choices are and what the options are is something that the agency is very focused and my team's very focused on trying to fill that gap. We learnt the need for intermediaries, um, whether it's support coordinators, helping people select and manage and coordinate their supports or local area coordinators. Those things will be much more present in transition than they were in trial and hopefully will help. We managed to um, identify different outcomes in different trial sites depending on how the system existed and early childhood early intervention is a really good example of where it was working better in some trial sites than others and that has uh, resulted in a change in the way the scheme approaches that part of the supports and services. Um, and then we also learnt just quite how disempowered many participants are as consumers. So the, the valiant assumption that the NDIS will be driven by empowered, informed, confident consumers negotiating and um, advocating and uh, exercising their choice emphatically, which will drive innovation and response, uh, responsiveness from suppliers. Some participants have started doing that already with incredible results, but it takes time for people to grow in confidence and, um, and we, we see that Currently, that means that there is pockets where providers have significant market power still, mm -hmm. and therefore the agency needs to monitor that quite vigilantly and do whatever we can, whether it's grassroots, peer-to-peer, -peer, whether it's sharing stories or whether it's coming to forums like this to get as much information out to participants as we can um, so that you can pick up that mantle and, um, and demand your rights. Rick, what would you say are the significant priorities going forward? So between now and 2019, um, the NDIS has to go from around about 30,000 people to 460,000. Um, I'm writing a story for tomorrow's paper when I get back to the office this afternoon about the incredible amount of pressure that's put in on the planners that the agency has um, to do the plans at a certain rate. Um, and that has an impact on quality um, in terms of how much time people spend talking to people with disability about what they actually need. Um, I liked what Lynn said before. I mean, like, imagine you're an explorer in the old days before you know what the world looks like, and they're like, what would you like to take back from your travels? Mm -hmm. And you don't know about spice yet. Like, I mean, and, so like, and you're like, oh, maybe like a, a pretty blue rock. Um, and you get to India and there's a lot of spice and you'd be really disappointed. Um, so that's kind of like, <laughs> if you don't spend time on that stuff, you don't, um, people aren't going to get what they need out of the scheme. And so I think that's, like, the crucial issue is the, the rate, the pace, um, of the transition between now and 2019. And that's obviously got to get worked out over time, but, and, and, you know, controversially or not, I think the agency probably needs more resources. Um, I'm not technically meant to say that, um, <laughs> but they probably do. So, and I think that that is going to be the, the hinge on which everything turns. That nexus, yeah. Let's go back to Lynn, and again, now we're looking at blue sky, as we've talked about a little bit. Uh, what advice would you give people coming into the scheme that really helped you? An advocate. An advocate. You definitely need an advocate within um, to do your plan because, as I said, you just to forget things because you live your life 
you don't think about the little things you have to have to live your life. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess uh, think outside the box. Don't just think what you get now and also think seven days a week, not... A lot of people think five days, you know, working days. You actually have to think from the time you get up uh, Monday morning to the time you go to bed on Sunday night of what you need within your plan because a lot of people forget the weekends. Yeah, no, it's a seven days mm. a week, tw in fact, 24 hours a day. Exactly. Peter, let's come back to you. What does a successful NDIS look, to, look like to you, for you? Uh, I guess um, a successful NDIS looks for us... Um, to be whatever the, the participants in the scheme want to get from it, um, each, each one of them individually. Um, and just, just, you know, I guess picking up on a couple of things that, that people have said, particularly as Rick's saying about the pressure in terms of numbers, um, we know that there was a delay in actually being able to begin to transition people into the scheme in the northeast trial site. That means we are we being the NDIS and, and providers, are now supporting 10,000 people to access the scheme in a kind of 10 months, not 12. Um, we, we hope that what we are doing is supporting the NDIS to um, create quality plans for people, but the pressure around numbers does put pressure on planners, does affect the quality of plans. Um, so a successful NDIS for us, I guess, would also be not necessarily the NDIS, but people with disability and their support networks having the resources they need to create successful plans. Now, whether that's more planners for face-to-face -face meetings, um, there are a number of strategies in place in the transition site with, I guess, what we would see as varying levels of success in terms of quality planning. Um, so I, I think I, I agree that that more resources to support people with disability to do good planning is what we would see as a, success, a successful transition um, with an end to people being as empowered and independent um, and making as, as much choice as possible um, and, and really seeing a, a community that evolves alongside of people with disability. We've got a lot to learn um, about, about how we also facilitate this ordinary life for people. Let's go back to Kirby um, through her dad, uh, Kevin. What, Kirby, have you been able to achieve personally? Well, being home, from, uh, being home really motivated me. I miss my family, my pets, music and anything that connected me to my old life. I didn't have the conversation of young people around me. I could have these things at home. The NDIS has provided me with the equipment and the support workers, which has enabled me to progress with my goals. And so what future goals do you have? Well, this is short and succinct from Kirby. <laughs> to talk and walk, to go back to my own, home, my own home and ultimately to go back to work. And we hope you achieve them, Kirby. Carol, You've, we've heard about advocacy, we've heard about pe preparation. What advice have you got for families going through this? I think that the one thing is don't compare yourself, don't compare yourself to someone else. I see a lot of people saying, well, what do you get? I've got this, what do you get? Don't do that. Everyone is different. Everyone has different goals. Go into your meeting thinking about what you want for the next year because you can change your goals from year to year. You don't need everything now. You don't have to think, this is it, I'm not getting any more. It's ongoing. So go in 
thinking I'd like to be able to go out and water ski, or I'd like to do this. I think definitely have an advocate, an independent advocate. I think everyone needs that. And I think don't listen to stories that um, scare you, worry you, negativity. Take it on board, but also take it with a grain of salt and wait and see what happens when you get to your meeting. And I think the really important thing is that we have to keep telling the NDIS what they're doing right and what they're not doing right, because we can't make things better if we don't let people know. We don't have to be mean and nasty and scary, but we need to give feedback both ways so that we can improve it. So be powerful, don't yes. be powerless. Fiona, you've, you've heard that things are changing, adaptable. We've just, uh, Esther pointed out that that cap is not going to be in place. What's critical for you in terms of that adaptability going forward? I think it is really crucial that we do solve the Australia-wide issue of the gap in advocacy funding and the need to sort out where that's going to sit and grow the funding for advocacy services. I think in terms of people getting ready for the scheme, that's crucial. And some of the comments that Peter made and others have made about helping people to prepare for the plan is crucial. And one of the problems we have is the NDIS doesn't currently fund that very much. So how are people going to access that support? As people go into the planning conversations, the thing I like to say to them is, remember, this is just the first one or just the second one, and every year your plan can look different. So my challenge to people is each year, think of something new that you want to try. Just one thing, one thing new each year, and then see what a difference that makes to your life long term. I think the other thing that's really important is to encourage people to use those review and appeal mechanisms when they're not happy, because that's one of the ways the NDIS learns. Rick, how would you define a successful NDIS? You've been close to this. What does that look like to you? You've got people in the community, um, people who were shut out, hidden away, unable to access work, um, their friendship circles. Um, we're already starting to see that. I mean, the NDIS, by any stretch of the imagination, is currently a success. Um, no matter how many articles I might write pointing out little things here and there that are wrong, the NDIS is working. Um, and when it rolls out, if there are any kinks left, um, they will be ironed out over time. Um, and people who are, we've seen the success stories now, we're moving young people out of nursing homes for crying out loud. I mean, that's, to me, that's phenomenal. Um, we've been talking about that for 15 years in this country, probably longer, and nothing ever got done. That's been done. So we just have to get to the end. Um, and success will be that economic and social participa participation that the Productivity Commission talked about. Um, and if people have control over their lives and can leave the house when they want, Job done. That sounds what we are all after. Peter, just back to you briefly in terms of policy, what expectations are you holding? The, the NDIS is structured on the insurance model. This is to ensure social programs are met and empowerment is delivered. This is quite diverse from the welfare model in opposition to its short-term needs-based structure. The insurance scheme approach to supporting people is different. Built into it is prudential insurance governance cycle which deals with the set of forecasts of what the NDIS will cost. For this, data will be collected that will validate or change those forecasts. Presently, there is more data on people with disabilities, so they are able to assess their needs better. Therefore, they will be able to demonstrate the most effective supports for them and will be able to assess 
if the outcomes differ from expectations resulting from the services provided. They can then make changes accordingly. Insurance schemes are data-driven processes. This means that over time it will lead to better, more cost-effective outcomes for people with disabilities and their families. Welfare schemes aim to minimize costs over very short periods of time, whereas insurance schemes minimize costs and maximize opportunities over a person's lifetime and are more aligned to their needs. Therefore, NDIS will reap better outcomes as they invest in independence and participation of individuals and the nurturing relationship of families and loved ones. In addition to being data-driven they invest in research. For example, accident compensation schemes have been researched thoroughly. Insurance companies have been important sources of social change as it gives the wider community the opportunity to pool in their money towards the betterment of the lifestyle of people with disabilities. This will ultimately lead to greater social outcomes including the reduction of stereotypes. Thanks, Peter. Let's uh, go back to Gordon. We know he does have strong opinions and has already been impacted. Let's get his thoughts on what a successful NDIS will look like. Maybe the answers aren't written in the document, but with the users themselves. Now I have more mind to think ahead so I can plan what I'm going to do and how I'm going to do it. That's what life is. We've had the plan review a month or so ago. Um, we've had the, the new plan um, sent back through to us and, and some of the new things have, have started coming through already. Um, Gordon's uh, social and community interaction is far greater than it was in the previous plan. Sometimes I'll go over and he's not there because he's out, you know, fishing or at karate or something like that. I have achievable goals that keep my interest up. It's a good idea the plan could be added and edited at any time. I believe I'm now in the place I should be. I just wish it could have happened earlier. I hope you don't have to use NDIS product, but if you do, it can help you. And families need to know this information. The NDIS should be made easier for people to access. How would you navigate it without someone intelligent and driven on your side? I was lucky I had that. Thanks to Gordon and his family for their contribution today. Esther, just finally, this is the beginning. Yep. It's got to be responsive. What, what is your assessment from the discussion today? I'm, I'm really pleased to be invited and I, I think we need more of them. Um, I, I think I said before, inf information is, is power. Information will reduce anxiety. It will um, be the sharing stories and sharing experiences the best way to understand what's working and what's not working. Agency is very, very committed to listening all the time and responding as quickly as we can. In terms of success, I don't think I can say it better than Rick and Peter combined. 
Um, I, I do reflect uh, that there's that social and economic participation and inclusion and independence, we just, we all take it for granted until we don't have it. And um, if we can achieve that or closer to that over the next few years for people who've, who've not had those opportunities, that's, that's why we're all, the scheme was backed in the first place and why we're all motivated to work through the lumps and bumps along the way. Um, I think Stella Young said that she'll, she, success for her was was not actually when she could get in and out of her own house um, easily, but, but when society was accessible enough that she could go to coffee next door at her neighbours and, and get in and out of her neighbour's house easily as well. And so success in a few years' time is when our communities are really accessible and you don't need special disability-specific supports because um, you can get around anyway. So Miss Stella around the ABC, I can tell you, she was a character and a half and very sad, her loss. Well, we've heard of the fear that Carol spoke of and hope, hopefully we've dismantled a little bit of that. We've heard information is key in this. There's so much goodwill. There is still a little bit of instability, but uh, I think there is a, a huge amount of excitement about how this might all change lives. Please thank all of our participants right here and in the audience. Thank you, Paul. So thank you all for your participation today. It was, um, it's a wonderful insight to, to get your experiences and your insights around the NDIS um, and, and to see the opportunities it does present. Um, it, uh, there are, the other key theme for me out of this is the importance of advocacy and there will be ongoing issues like there is in any trial. You will not know all the answers, but the importance of having the dialogue, keep it going, and also the importance of advocating for others who need us to do that for them. So in order to keep the conversation going, we will put a copy of today's forum up on our website shortly. Uh, and in the meantime, I encourage you to use uh, the social media channels, uh, a number of you have on the, on the, the screen there, uh, in particular the hashtag NewNDISWorld. Um, for those of you that don't use social media, please use opportunity to grab and mingle after the event with those people here uh, and members of the Summer Foundation. Um, today I'm also happy to uh, be able to launch a copy of our latest annual report. There is a flyer on your chair that you, it shows you how to get a copy. Um, there have been a number of highlights this year uh, for the organisation, in particular some of the initiatives we are doing at the NDIS trial sites some of which you heard on today from Tom. Uh, we're particularly pleased um, with the launch of the Hunter Housing Demonstration Project. So the Summer Foundation works on these projects um, to highlight the positive impact housing can have on people in disabilities, particularly when they're, they're well-designed and well-located, they use smart home technology, uh, and they're adaptable and accessible to support independence for people. So our, our aim on this is to both create, evaluate and then share our knowledge of this housing so ultimately it can be replicated in major housing projects across Australia. Finally today, I just want to, I'm pleased to launch two position papers from the Summer Foundation. The first is entitled Access to the NDIS for Younger People in Residential Aged Care. And the second is entitled Developing NDIS Housing for People with Complex Support Needs. Both these 
papers outline recommendations by the Summer Foundation in these two critical areas. They are available online or you can please speak to a member of staff if you would like a copy. I suppose today's forum really highlights a number of issues around the NDIS, but more importantly, the great opportunity, the once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that it presents. And there will always be questions that will still need to get answered. Um, and I don't want to leave it just to our friends in the media to ask the difficult questions. I think we can all go away and keep probing and asking, and ultimately we'll get a better outcome. So thank you for your attendance today, and good afternoon, and please use the opportunity to mingle. Thank you. it up next time I know she knows it's not right there ain't no use in lying maybe she thinks I know something maybe maybe she thinks it's fine or maybe she knows something I don't I'm so I'm so tired so tired of trying It seems to me that maybe It pretty much always means no So don't tell me You might just let it go But oftentimes we're lazy It seems to stand in
sees it with her sleeping eyes and I know that when she said she's gonna try well it might not work because of other ties and I know she usually has some other ties and I wouldn't want to break on I wouldn't want to break on maybe she'll help me to untie this but until then well I'm gonna have to lie to it seems to me that maybe it pretty much always means no so don't tell me you might just let it go and oftentimes we're lazy it seems to stand in my way there's no Just let it go Out of that you try, baby, the further you fall So bad to